Hey, this is Mark Altman, and you can join the Trexperts live on Clubhouse Sunday at 7 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, 10 o'clock Eastern, as we do our live post show and take your questions and talk about this week's episode of Inglorious Trexperts. So join us only on Clubhouse for an exclusive look behind the scenes for our Trexperts post show. Available on Clubhouse this Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Hope to hear you there. Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a I second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it a is. But it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies television and more you can see us on demand on electric now i demand it i demand because i demand it <laughs> commodore stone can watch us on the electric now app and how do you get the electric now app because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using and you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams, other than a Viewmaster. You download it, and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. Yeah. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love Trexpert's Briefing Room, a Trexpert's new series. Trexpert's Briefing Room? What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I'm it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind-the-scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you can find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts Briefing podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see what's out there. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. We are the Inglorious Trexperts. Ta-da! I said, did I say <laughs> that with the proper enthusiasm? Man has enthusiasm. You said it just right. Well, listen, I guess we're going to be talking uh, today. Uh, we're revisiting a subject near and dear to our heart. It's Star Trek Comics. And uh, we, we wouldn't imagine delving into this fascinating subject without one of the foremost experts on Star Trek Comics. Uh, he's been reading them for a long time. He's been loving them for a long time. Of course, I'm talking about our uh, one of our favorite special guests, uh, the 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 owner, the proprietor, the 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 the, the head uh, 
um, a man at the, the head man. Work. Yes, the head, the head man at the the Burnett work. Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome. Happy holidays. Well, happy holidays to you. It's great to be back here doing this. You know, as you said, I, I you know, I recently went through I, I have every Star Trek comic and I have three long boxes of them. And I went through them recently and I still love them, Mark. I still <laughs> yeah. love them. I, you know, look, whenever we got to do novels or comics, we can always count on you to have them all because you are a completist. And I, 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 you know, we're going to have a wonderful conversation coming up with Rich Hanley, who is one of the foremost scholars on Star Trek comics. He is the editor of the Eagle Moss uh, Star Trek archives right now. He's he's done a, a, a ton uh, of great work. He also has done a bunch of books uh, for Hasline Books about Planet of the Apes and Watchmen and Back to the Future. But today it's all going to be about Star Trek. And when we come back after the interview, I want to hear, Rob, your favorite Star Trek comic book. So when we come back after talking to Rich, Rob is going to tell us from his massive collection what his favorite Star Trek comic of all time is. Nice. So stay tuned for that. And we'll see you after this exclusive interview with Rich Hanley. And here we are with uh, Rich Hanley, although I want to call him Dr. Hasline. Just because I've always wanted to call somebody Dr. Hasline, but um, but I, I guess I shouldn't. It's what my wife calls me, so go right ahead. Nice. <laughs> well, we want you know we've talked about um, Star Trek comics on the show before with the brothers Tipton, who are always delightful guests. But I mean, you are like the guardian of forever when it comes to uh, Star Trek comics. A you know, question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can answer them all. I mean, not only have you been, you know, chronicling Star Trek comics for years, but uh, in addition, you know, what you've done for Eagle Moss is extraordinary in terms Thank of uh, its archival um, collecting all, you know, all the, the, this amazing run of, of Trek comics over the years. But then I love the books you did for Titan, where you unearthed all the... Um, those wonderful UK comic strips, which I'd never seen, mm -hmm. um, which we really had beautifully designed as well. I mean, that was a fantastic, Thanks. fantastic you set. The books, you mean the books for IDW? IDW, right, right. Yeah, that yeah, wasn't okay. Titan, IDW, yeah. I did absolutely. do a book for Titan, but it was a different franchise. That's what threw me at first. Mm. <laughs> no, no, the, I, the IDW books were just, just gorgeous. Um, Thank you. I can't and... take total credit for that, though, because that's Dean Mullaney. I, I, uh, I assisted and, and wrote the intros, but that that amazing layout is totally not me. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting because, of course, you know I'm somebody who grew up on the Star Trek comic books. You know, sort of familiar with the Gold Key. You know, loved buying those trade paperback collections as a kid um, because they were the only game in town. Then you know, uh, read the Marvel comics or um, and 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 then later DC. I you know I wasn't even aware of the um, of the UK comic strips, you know, this is something I, I didn't hear about until, you know, I guess when we were researching 50 year mission and then you came out with it mm. or those trade paper, the, you know, that hard covered mm -hmm. uh, coffee table book came out. Uh, so anyway, I think a lot of people weren't available to them. Yeah. I mean, we're, I mean, weren't aware of them. I, I, I just right. misspoke. A lot of them were not aware. A lot of people not aware of them uh, because that was the, that was the response I got the most, which was what the hell are these? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love the idea of um, Star Trek comics set, you know, right after Star Trek, the motion picture, too, mm -hmm. because, of course, that's a, an underexplored era of canon that I think, uh, particularly for the three of us, you know, as huge fans of the motion picture mm -hmm. is such an interesting era. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. What kind sure. of, uh, you know, triggered your interest in uh, Star Trek comics and, you know, sort of led to you becoming 
like the scholar of uh, of Star Trek in the four color world. I can tell you exactly what it was because I remember the day. I was um, it was in 1984, and I was uh, I was walking through the local mall in Poughkeepsie where I grew up, and DC Star Trek number nine was on the stands. It was the uh, first uh, post the Search for Spock issue, and it. Uh, it was. It featured the uh, the first version of the, the first comic book return to the Marvel uh, to the Mirror Universe. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I was a major fan ever since I was a kid of the TV shows, and I'd been reading the novels, which were not coming out one every four days like they do now. So it was a big treat when the novels came out, and therefore I needed more. You know, there, there, there were novels only came out a couple a year, and it wasn't enough for me. And I came walked past that comic and saw it and said. Kind of like what people said to me with the UK comics. What the hell is that? And um, and I picked it up and leafed through it and said, this is really good. Uh, and back then, comics d- didn't cost a lot. So I, I, you know, I took my allowance for that week, brought it home and said, if, it, if it's no good, it will be not a lot of money lost. Um, however, the next day I went to the local comic shop and tracked down the previous eight issues. And then I. Uh, and then I sort of went nuts tracking down Marvel and Gold Key, and that was the beginning of a lifelong obsession. Well, the advantage of collecting Star Trek uh, comics, it's sort of like co- collecting Rom the Space Knight. You're never going to end up spending a ton of money. It's not like you're you know, collecting old issues of X-Men or action comics. Star Trek uh, comic collecting is fairly affordable by comparison. They've never quite gone up in value. The funny thing is, back then, that wasn't true of Gold Key. Well, only because it was pre-internet and people had this mistaken belief that gold key comics were rare. These days you can go on eBay and find all 61 issues at a relatively cheap cost. But I can remember when I started, uh, I was 16 at the time and I started looking them up and the only ver- a copy of number one that I saw was selling for $900, which in a ridiculous amount of money today for a comic, <laughs> uh, for a Star Trek comic. But in 1984, it was insane. Um, right. Thankfully, when, by the time I started collecting the gold key ones, they had come down a lot, and I, I spent nowhere near that amount. In fact, I got that first issue for a dime at a, uh, at a yard sale from a, from a grandma who didn't know what she had in a box. In fact, that was probably I felt really around, awful about it. <laughs> that was probably around the price that you could get an actual gold key uh, at. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> what did what? you think of those gold key comics? I... <laughs> uh, at the time that I picked up my first gold key, I had caught up on DC and had read all of Marvel. So I was used to the movie era comics and the, the fact that, you know, for the most part, they did a really good job of capturing that. So I got all excited when I saw these beautiful covers on gold key and thought, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> uh, they're, they're unique. Um, I love them now from a nostalgia standpoint, from the standpoint of there, there's something incredibly fun about reading things that make you wonder if you just inadvertently ingested shrooms. Um, but, uh, but at the time that I first read them, I remember thinking, what, what the flames coming out the back? What is this? Like, what, what kind of, like, what is, what is with the, the colon in the middle of the star date? Like, what, why is everybody wearing green shirts? Why is Kirk calling his crew the boys? You know, the Ms. Men, rather. Like, what is this? But it was- I, I didn't mind because I loved it anyway. It was sort of our, our first example of seeing what Star Trek would be like in the hands of people who, A, didn't know anything about it, right. and B, didn't really care anything about it. So we were trained for the future, in, in, in some sense. 
You know, it's it, funny because uh, at the same time that Gold Key was coming out, the, that was when the UK strips were also uh, yeah. around the time that it started. And what you just said applied to that as well. The people, uh, the people who were creating the early issues of Gold Key, hadn't seen or hadn't seen it. And uh, and the people who were creating the early, well, pretty much the entire uh, uh, UK series um, hadn't seen it. And uh, and it and it and it shows. <laughs> but there is there is a uh, there is a division of those UK comics that are the most beautifully drawn and accurate strips I've ever seen. Oh, um, you know, from an art standpoint, the UK strips are fun. It's the writing that's bizarre. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's always <laughs> been the case with, uh, you know, sort of non-quote canon uh, Star Trek. But yeah. um, I, for, based, based on my opinion as uh, sort of an art aficionado, um, <laughs> that is the thing that I sort of was drawn to, sure. pun intended. Um, and when I first I first saw those uh, the uh, the annuals uh, from the UK, uh, and I looked at him and I said, "Oh my God, no one has ever been able to capture Shatner before." And they they actually did, and it was they did. the likenesses were really quite good. Yeah. Those. It's funny to me with the gold key. Um, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I just knew it was bizarre. But, you know, looking back, they're kind of like the spaghetti Westerns of Star Trek. You know, it, it's like, you know what a Western it, yeah. is? And then when you watch a spaghetti Western, like there's something off about it, but right. it's still like gonzo great, you know? You can and still it's look okay. at it and go, I think this is a Western. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not John Ford, but it's something different. And, and, and that's kind of how I feel about Gold Key. It's like this total pulp kind of... You know, and 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 uh, obviously, um, uh, you know, there is that 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 uh, you know comparableness in terms of you know, <laughs> given Alberto Giolotti's involvement, and everything. It's, it's just uh, crazy. It's kind of like if Star Trek were produced by the Klingons. That's <laughs> kind of what it feels like. It feels very alien. The Klingons we know are Gold Key's bald Klingons who <laughs> right. wear like you know like nineteen uh, fifties bathing suits. <laughs> well, that's the big question, isn't it? <laughs> but it it was interesting because when I was reading Gold the Gold Key comics, they were the collected versions. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd put like eight of them together in a soft right. cover uh, book and, and the Enterprise logs. The Enterprise logs, right. and mm -hmm. you, you, I would read them, and I'm thinking, this is all nutty and and insane. But there was something, like we were saying, something about them that they were fun to read. Like, yeah, there were giant carnivorous plants. And like you said, there were flames coming out of the shuttle bay. And, and clearly, it was almost as if, you know, it was a dream of Star Trek or a nightmare. There was a lot of horror influence. There was a lot of classic genre film influence. It was... To some a dream, to other a nightmare. <laughs> It's funny, Robert, that you mentioned the the, uh, the giant plants. What strikes me is every time I read that first issue, what strikes me fun is funny about that is that they're said to be giant carnivorous cannibal plants, and it always makes me wonder, well, what does a carnivorous cannibal plant eat? Well, it would have to eat right? other plants because yeah. that would make Except it carnivorous. It's carnivorous. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, wouldn't the first generation of this species die? Wouldn't it be sitting there going, "I want to eat meat." But I'm a cannibal. <laughs> so I need to eat the other plant, but I only want meat. Like you at what point would they would would they yeah. ever have a second generation? They'd starve to death. 
<laughs> well, that was always such a strange thing. It, it never made sense to me. I mean, I found out later that the first they had never seen the show, the people that were creating the comics. And then the next comics I was aware of, because I didn't know about the UK comics either, were the Marvel comics that came out after Star Trek, the motion picture. But they only had the rights to use what was in Star Trek, the motion picture. They couldn't. Right, right. Although so they did they, get around it. They, they snuck a lot of stuff in there. They there. did. But then they that, did that stuff like, I think Marty Pasco wrote an episode about ancient Egypt. There's mm -hmm. a haunted house story. And I'm like, come on, Marvel. Can't you do a little better than but this? Rob, you remember when we were sitting with Marv Wolfman at Comic-Con and, and telling him about, you know, we were going on forever about, you know, all oh, those old Marvel Star Trek. Con and I'm sure he'd love that. Of all the things he's done, this is what we're, we're obsessing over <laughs> right. is the Marvel Star Trek. And he's like, whatever. Remember, there was a two part haunted house in space and yep. you left for D.C. in the middle of it. Do you remember how you were going to end it? It's like, like 40, 30 years later. It's like, no, I have no idea. <laughs> I have a soft spot for those comics simply because of the earlier story I told about how I got into them. Yeah. But they were some of the very first I read because I, I picked up issue nine of DC and then immediately went and picked up anything I could find. So some of the very first ones that I read were those Marvel stories. And yeah, I mean, I, I Spock the Barbarian cover is just, <laughs> that, that's one of those moments where you just go, no, uh, but I, I still have a, a soft spot for those stories. Um, and they had a couple of bona fide, very good ones, especially the last two. But they, yeah, they McCoy's also had daughter, the McCoy's daughter issue. Right. I like that one. It's a good one. It's good. But, yeah. But th that, that final issue in, in which uh, there's a giant, uh, giant robot that repeatedly kills Kirk and Spock to uh, get them to teach his people how to care about others. I, that was a great story. It's genuinely good Star Trek, and it and it totally nailed it in terms of the themes of the of the franchise. Right. And you get to that issue, and you go, "Why weren't you doing this on the other 17? <laughs> <laughs> Might have gone to number nineteen if you'd been doing this all." Yeah, no. But then they finally <laughs> got it right with DC, and that first DC series oh, yes. was there was a lot of things that were very prophetic, like yeah. a Klingon on the bridge. Mm -hmm. Conum, 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 Conum. I, I, you had I a always character. say Conum, but I guess Conum actually. I know. I think it's Conum. Yeah. I would say, yeah. That's but that I was said, yeah. they did a lot of really interesting stuff with that with that mm -hmm. uh, series, and I, I really I also liked enjoyed it. William Bearclaw. The idea that yep. the idea that uh, the Utopia has cracks in it because there's a bigot in the, in in the main cast was interesting to me. At the time, a lot of people were upset about this, but I think it, time has been kind to that character as. The, as the sequel TV shows have started to show that there are in fact cracks in the utopia. So I think, I think bear cloth fits better. No. and, well, and those, know, Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, before we move on to DC, uh, it's interesting to put the Marvel book in the context of the time, because mm -hmm. at the time they were adapting a lot of IP unsuccessfully, whether it be Logan's run or most mm -hmm. insanely 2001, a space odyssey, yeah. find out what happened after we found the monolith. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Logan's run is a great example. And so, you know, they were you know, trying to extend all these, you know, intellectual properties, some more successfully than other Battlestar Galactica went. Which, by the way, I love. I'm, I'm an unabashed fan of the Battlestar Galactica line, even though most people don't like it. I think it's great. But I know and, it has its flaws. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, it was interesting. And then, of course, you know, Star Wars, obviously, um, as you know, as well. I mean, it gave the world the hoojibs. So uh, who, and who, who doesn't who, love the hoojibs? 
And who doesn't love the hoojibs? So my question to you, of course, is just, do you feel that the problem in adapting Star Trek to comics is, particularly in that era, was there was a need to deliver first and foremost to the comic fans who wanted a certain amount of action and, you know, big splash pages. And that inherently, you know, it's the old thing Nick Meyer says about Star Trek is a radio drama and Mission Impossible was, a, you know, was a, a, a TV show or a, a movie. And, 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 and uh, so the question is, you know, is Star Trek well suited given the fact that at its best, it's an intellectual, more cerebral exercise that is not uh, an action packed uh, um, thrill ride, you know, unless you're somebody making a, a, a movie for Paramount in the uh, late 20, 21st century. Um, you know, how does that work with comics? And, you know, was that a problem for Marvel and sort of reconciling that? It seemed DC understood better the, the, the idea of what Star Trek is and can be. I think that, um, I think it's a, it's a good question because it is a it is a, a cerebral franchise. It, it it and a large part of a large part of Trek's appeal uh, is the acting. Uh, whether it's great acting or over the top acting, it's still the acting is a large part of the appeal. But I I think that I think part of the reason why it is suited to that medium is because we have people like Peter David and Mike W. Barr and the Tipton brothers and and John Byrne who who have produced some truly great stories and 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 in my opinion some of the best story trek stories you know some of my personal favorites period regardless of the media uh, are in the comics some of the worst are too <laughs> uh, <laughs> because because not everybody is mike w bar peter david and tiptons but um but there but i do think that uh, that uh those authors and a, and a bunch of others have shown that it can be done, you know. If a if a writer truly understands uh, the themes, the the uh, the characters, the the um, the times in which each series was written, because that's important, you know. Like mm -hmm. when I when I when I see Kirk, there are some comics where Kirk will refer to as a his away team, and I just sort of cringe, you know. Uh, you know, so the historical context counts. If the artists know um, know how to approach each one with the aesthetic of that era it can certainly be done properly. I mean, for, for every crappy comic, not just Star Trek period, but any crappy run of a comic, there's a good one. For every good run of a comic, there's a crappy one. And it's true for Spider-Man and it's true for X-Men and it's true for Superman. Um, and uh, <laughs> if Brother Power the Geek had gone past two issues, it probably would have been true for that too. Uh, but, but it's... Uh, you know, I think that Star Trek, the reason, if you look at back, I mean, going back to 1967, there have been comics produced in almost every year. And uh, there are only, only a couple of really small gaps um, where, where there weren't any. And I don't think that that would be true if there weren't quality stories being done along the way. Uh, there's, a, there's a reason why we're not saying uh, you know, there's a reason why I, I wasn't the editor of Eagle Moss's brother, the pa brother Power the Geek graphic novel collection right like there's a reason for that um <laughs> although i would have found that really fun um <laughs> so uh, the the long answer is that the short answer is i absolutely think it's it's suited the comic medium is suited to star trek if the right people are involved well again it's a it's a it's the way that they handle the tone that has been established 
um, mm -hmm. because even even in science fiction, the science fiction genre, there are subgenres, and you know you either you have a, a lost in space tone or you have a Star right. Trek tone, and it seems to me that especially those early uh, Gold Key were in the lost in space vein completely, <laughs> and and that that kind of explains that, and it, it it you can understand where they were coming from if they if they weren't familiar with the with the uh, actual show. Likewise, the UK strips are in the Jerry Anderson theme. Sure. Yeah. Because sure. they were in Jerry Anderson magazines being right. done by writers and artists who were doing Jerry Anderson strips. Precisely. So it makes sense. But it, but it, but it fits what you're saying. If they did only they, they had never seen it because it hadn't even aired there yet. So right. if they hadn't if they didn't know what to do and um, it, it, they, it would look it seems that the only reference material the early artists had and the early writer uh, had was um, some stills and you know maybe some character descriptions from the Corbomite <laughs> maneuver because Dave Bailey is a is a recurring character. Yeah. But the main cast in, <laughs> involves David Bailey. Like, why is he in the main cast? Um, but that that kind of nails down exactly what reference material they had to have been given, and you can tell the point at which the show started airing in the UK because Bailey just sort of vanishes. Right. Apparently, the like the writers went, oh, he was in it once and then left. Okay, well, uh, yeah, let's just get him out of there. All right. <laughs> but it was interesting as the comic series developed, especially at DC beginning in the, you know, the post, what is it, Star Trek Three era, and then how there was a lot of crossover between the mm -hmm. Star Trek novelists of the time yeah. that were also coming over and writing the comics, whether it was Diane Duane, Diane Duane Howard Weinstein, and then, of mm -hmm. course, Peter David, who was Mike a great Friedman. Michael Jan Friedman, the, and mm -hmm. Peter David being an incredible comic writer in his own right. Um, he also went on and created his own new original Trek uh, series for for Pocket, you know, mm -hmm. the um, the New Frontiers series. Frontier. But then he would come over and he wrote great comics as well. And it was and um, in fact, he brought New Frontier to the comics twice as well. Yes, he did. And it was really great for Wildstorm and IDW. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt there was more legitimacy as well. Like in terms of the comics, they really DC really elevated the Star Trek comic to a whole nother level. Yeah, but before we go get too far uh, from uh, down the road, I, I also want to say, you know, we didn't talk about, again, one of the more esoteric ones, which is uh, the Peter Pan records, the power records. Sets. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting. Also the Los Angeles because... time strips, too. That, too. Yeah, yeah. Another one and, we don't want to miss. Yeah. And, and that, you know, Alan Dean Foster, you know, mm -hmm. was writing the scripts for some of you had, you know, a huge talent like Russ, you know, Russ Heath doing the artwork. And so, you know, and again, it's something I don't think our younger audience can even wrap their head around. These were records that came <laughs> with a comic in, you know, gatefold inside. Sometimes, the, you know, the vinyl. Sometimes they know. came with a comic. Yeah, yeah six so, of them did and then a bunch of them didn't. Yeah, yeah. You know, so th which so those frustrates me. Really I would love remarkable. to see some of the other ones, like in Vino Veritas. I wish that right. that existed in comic form. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, and, the, the Peter uh, Pan yeah. stuff is 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 a, a really a bizarre sub pocket in, in in Star Trek comics history because a couple of them are genuinely well written Star Trek, even though they're aimed at six year olds, <laughs> and a couple of them are profoundly bad it's right. you, you you it's just it's strange I, you know like um some of them are just really fun passage to moav, moav. I, yeah, yeah moav yeah it's been a while since i've listened to the recording version <laughs> i usually just read it so i had to think about that but that's a fun story you know uh dinosaur planet not so much you know like it, it depends <laughs> on which one you're reading <laughs> yeah but, but i i love even you know going back to gold key for a second 
you know, that there's certain eddies and currents that bring people back into this world. You look at Doug Drexler, you mm -hmm. know, for instance, and how he, you know, at very early in his career, you know, crossed paths with the Gold Key guys and became yeah. tangentially involved for a little while with Gold Key and did his best to sort of put them on the right track, so to speak, you know, and, and that, uh, that one period of Gold Key is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, again, those had such pulpy, larger than life ideas like, you know, uh, invasion of the city builders, you know, and I think I said this when we talked to the Tiptons, it's like China now building these cities where they don't have enough people to put them in these any of these giant empty cities that they haven't <laughs> even put people in. And it's just like there's some really crazy, audacious sci fi ideas, even if the execution is, you know, gonzo or, or, or not really Trekkian. But, you know, I think. That was the thing about the original Star Trek 2. It's like sometimes you have these crazy ideas like Spock's brain and it yeah. doesn't necessarily succeed, but you, <laughs> right. you respect the attempt. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think when Star Trek starts to get sort of, uh, you know, more like it doesn't aspire to do those things anymore. You know, it sort of puts baby in a corner uh, that it, 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 it's less interesting because, you know, Star Trek, when it, it would attempt big things and occasionally succeed, but it would also, when it could fail, you know, in a, in a, in a dramatic way, it kept it interesting. And, you know, when you don't yeah. attempt that anymore, it makes it less interesting. So, uh, but you were saying that uh, we didn't talk about the LA syndicate strips, which right. never ran in LA, actually. Isn't that yeah, correct? Yeah, funny enough, the LA Times syndicate um, published them and the LA Times did not. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, the, the L.A. Times strips and also the uh, the British strips, I didn't know existed for a long time. Um, I had a very, you know, I had come in at D.C., as I mentioned, but it took about 10 years for me to track down everything because the gold key run wasn't cheap at the time. And I'm kind of frugal. You don't end up you know, with that if you spend a lot of money. because you can't afford it. Right? So, I, I, you know, I'm careful. I buy things in bulk and sell off what I don't want or I'll wait until for still something, you know, the cost that I'm willing to spend. But back before the Internet, that wasn't so easy. And the day that I managed to complete the Gold Key run, I was very excited because I had Gold Key Marvel in D.C. Obviously, I was done. <laughs> <laughs> my, my friend, uh, I'm going to say his name, Ben Sastrowodoyo, in case he listens to this, because he's the reason that we all now have those those strips in our in our collection. Ben went to a convention. And uh, this was, it would have been like, I don't know, 91, 92, somewhere thereabouts. And uh, he came back, he came back from it with a, with a gift for me, a comic book about this big. And he said, well, you say, you, you always tell me you have every Star Trek comic. Do you have this one? And I just went, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and they're, they're the ones on the bottom shelf here. You can see there's a complete set on that bottom shelf. Just the oh entire goodness. UK run right there. Uh, underneath the, the uh, underneath the Eagle Moss books. And uh, so I had this first one I'm looking at, and I just sort of stared at it and said, what, what am I looking at? Because I've rather arrogantly assumed I had them all, and I'm a fool, apparently. What, what is this? And, and, and since, uh, since it's 1991, and I have no idea what the internet is, how am I supposed to look this up? So, um, especially because it was in Britain, and I, I'm not. And uh, but it took me a long time, but I managed to nail down that there were 257 issues. But uh, <laughs> somehow I got I found them all. And just around the time that I was done with this. Someone else handed me a, 
<laughs> some scans of another series of strips. And I said, you got to be kidding me. I just spent <laughs> years tracking down five years worth of strips. But the, the good news is this was in the United States and libraries exist. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was able to track them down and at least get the creator's names. And uh, then I started reaching out to the creators left and right. And they started providing me with all the materials, like the actual um, proof sheets from the newspaper. And, mm -hmm. and those are post Star Trek, the motion picture as well, mm -hmm. right? Yes, they they uh, they ran from seventy nine to eighty three, mm -hmm. and uh, the first the first set the first eight stories are from Thomas Warkent, and he both wrote and drew them, and they're the great ones. They're genuinely good stories. Uh, the likenesses are astounding. Um, the cr creative teams after Thomas left vary. The, the the series is still fun, but some, some of them are not quite Warkenton. Uh, but they were collected though into those beautiful the beautiful hardcovers. Yes, yes. Uh, so um, for years, once I had them all, I said, this is crazy. I'm, no one even even seems to know these things exist. And I have them all. And I, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a, a lone geek. That's boring. I, if I have them all, I want to say to someone, read these. What do you think of them? You know, they suck, don't they? They're great. And um, and uh, so I started going to comic publishers and saying, will you reprint these? Um and uh, it twice, a uh, company said yes, and then ran into some legal problems. And, and, and so the third, the third was the charm. I approached IDW about it. And the weird thing about it was I hadn't looked at, I hadn't looked at getting them republished, uh, reprinted in years. But I said, I'm, all right, I'll try one more time, and then I'm done. Apparently, I'll just be the only guy who can read these. Um, but I reached out to Chris Ryle at IDW, and his response 10 minutes later was, holy crap, I've just spent all week trying to figure out how I can find these. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I want to reprint them, but I can't find them. I said, oh. Um, and, uh, and so that, that he put me in touch with uh, Dean Mullaney. And next thing I knew, um, my offer to just present them ended up being my being the assistant editor on the five books and then writing all the introductions, which was cool because those five books are scanned from my collection. So it was a very, uh, it was a very cool thing to also be writing all the supplementary materials for them. That's great. Well, before yeah. we move on to the post Star Trek, the motion picture, era, mm -hmm. I have to acknowledge two things. One, that gorgeous super special, the adaptation of Star Trek, the motion picture really is one of the great movie adaptations in yeah. comics. I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's absolutely stunning. And uh, and then, of course, it was serialized into the first three issues of uh, mm -hmm. the Star Trek comic. But just it's just just great. But at the same time, contemporaneous with that we can't not move on without acknowledging the happy meal adaptations. You know? <laughs> How can you not? <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the happy meal, they, 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 they had six uh, happy meal boxes that contained five strips because one of them ran twice. Um, so they didn't even get that. They were six strips and one of them was repeated. Um, yeah. But uh, it was a, a six, uh, very, very, very brief strip adaptation of the motion picture. And then inside it, was this weirdly enough hanging right behind me the video communicator toy so yes, inside yeah. the box was a toy and you would scroll like this and each one of the depending on which one you had there there were five different strips um those are also in the idw books by the way it's an <laughs> that's gonna fall i'll deal with that later um <laughs> i don't take a risk on the video communicator falling under the floor so um <laughs> But yeah, it's you know it's funny it, 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 you bring up the communicator. One of the I mean, I'm sure you as collectors 
yourselves, and I, I know Robert is because I can see it. <laughs> uh, but one, one of the cool things about collecting sometimes isn't necessarily always the great stuff. Sometimes it's the bad stuff too. There, there's something fun about like you know if you're a collector of Star Wars action figures and you hold up what was it called Headman? I think the um the, the, back, back back when the original uh, figures were made, there was a a bootleg from another country. It was like a blue. Was it a blue Darth Vader? I forget, but the figure said Headman on the package. <laughs> and years ago, I had one, and I thought this was the greatest thing ever, yeah, just because of how ridiculous it was. Well, well speaking of that, you know, the, the newspaper, I mean, the Happy Meal comics had the scene from the motion picture where two characters die in a transporter accident. Yeah, for, for, for eight-year-olds eating cheeseburgers. kids love that, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, especially if you're only going to do five panels. That's that's the really important scene that you want in there, yeah. I still can't believe that they did that. The yeah. most horrible death you can possibly imagine immortalized on a Mc, uh, McDonald's. Especially eating McDonald's. He didn't live long, fortunately. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's like, come on. You I, know, I think oh. the approach was that those, uh, those strips are basically from the beginning of the movie. And and that Happy Meal box, the Happy Meal boxes were intended to promote the film. So right. here's a five five uh, strip adaptation of the opening scenes. Now go see the movie. Yeah. I guess right. what they weren't really thinking about the implications of showing two people horribly dying by well, having probably with the with the lead times on them. That's probably all they had time to do because yeah, yeah. you know only the first couple of reels were done. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, I just got to say, I'm very excited about, uh, you know, the return of Headman on uh, The Mandalorian next week. <laughs> <laughs> They're bringing How, all how amazing They're would really... that be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't, surprise it, it yeah, it wouldn't be surprising wrong, at so all. I'm going to have to look that up. I think it was Headman. I, I just know that it was really ridiculous looking. Um, <laughs> if but, that but isn't his so name, I should be have one. it back when I used to collect those, because sometimes the bad stuff is fun, right? Right. And, and the, um, the 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 Happy Meal falls into that. The Star Trek Space Viewer, which makes the Happy Meal look like Shakespeare, is is also in there. You know, there's something really fun about bad comics, and I'm not sure why, but but there is. You know, yeah. Like Cap, you know, I, I kept my Captain Carrot and the New Zoo review crew just <laughs> because I it's so bad that I I have to keep it for all time. Um, pretty pretty staggering. <laughs> uh, I do have to say. Um, it, 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 you mentioned the Happy Meals. I remember when we did our panel at Comic-Con for the 40th anniversary of Star Trek, the motion picture, we showed a couple of the Happy Meal commercials um, and it got a huge response because most people don't realize the first Happy Meal was for Star Trek, the motion picture, nor nor do they associate Star Trek with McDonald's. So uh, I, other than that, I'm loving it. But, uh, you know, it, it was pretty uh, it was pretty great to see the crowd just freaking out over those mcdonald's particularly the one where the klingon is is speaking yeah. in gibberish talking about how he loves McDonald's. that's, that's not gibberish mark that's klingonese <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's doing yes right well he was he was yeah. eating a a double gach burger so you know he was happy <laughs> there you go but it, it it represents this time when you know star trek and star trek fandom was still the wild wild west they and, and I'm not talking about yes. the TV show. Um, hmm. It's it's no one knew what they were doing. They yes. were still trying to figure out the whole darn thing, and they finally sort of got a handle on it during uh, Next Generation with figuring out who the audience was, or at least at that time. Um, but it's so funny to see all these sort of there's everything is sort of slightly off. 
Mm. It, it nothing ever really hits the direct mark. It's always sort of blanket bombing uh, enough to try and get a lot of people interested in it, but it just doesn't quite hit it. Well, and it's because fascinating in, because in that era, um, Star Wars had been so huge, and the Star Wars merchandising had been so huge. Yeah. Paramount and and the licensing partners were still under the. Uh, illusion that Star Trek was somehow going to be the next Star Wars right, yeah. in terms of the merchandising. I said, not it could be bigger than Star Wars because people already know what Star Trek is. Right. They already love right. it. And now we have this huge Star Trek movie that's three times the cost of Star Wait Wars. Wait a minute. We got something like that, don't we? <laughs> well, yeah. you know, that's what, what you guys are saying is the re it goes, it actually explains why the LA Times didn't run its own strip. Back when, um, when the uh, newspaper strip was being made, um, they had a whole lot of trouble marketing it because newspapers already had Buck Rogers. They already had Flash Gordon. The Star Wars strip was big and nobody was running science fiction. Science fiction at the time was not what it is today right. in terms yeah. of the, the public's perception of the acceptance of it. And newspapers that had two or three of those weren't going to invest in a fourth one when they it's, thought it's no every Beetle Bailey. Right. Yeah, because yeah, because yeah, exactly. You know, you have to kick Beetle Bailey out of there and they don't they're not willing to do that. Right. Or the so family circus. Cap, you know, exactly. Yeah. Family circus. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so what ended up happening was, you know, you end up with these um, small town newspapers that couldn't afford Buck and, uh, and and Star Wars were running this, whereas the, the very company that was producing Star Trek wasn't. Right. And that might be why nobody remembered it for the longest time, because it's not like anybody was talking about a small town paper from a small village somewhere, you know, like it, it, and so it, it, it remained in obscurity and, and something happened, I think with in the eighties that overturned all this, you know, you were saying about the, about the seventies, they weren't sure what they were doing, but the next generation came along and after a year or two, it suddenly clicked in. Mm-hmm. But all the stuff that we were just talking about, the uh, the new the um the U the UK stuff, the the gold key, the the, the you know this wonderful thing, right. uh, all the, the the first Marvel run, all of that comes out of the seventies from from when they really weren't quite sure what Star Trek was, and it's and right. it's a lot of fun. But at no point do you look at read this stuff and go, now that's the Star Trek I want to see on the big screen, you know? Because but it was also it was also because of you know, advertising agencies and PR firms still operating like they did in the 60s. Yeah. Because it, it, it still was sort of a general uh, sort of offering to everybody. And, and they hadn't learned to pinpoint their, who their audience was and target people. Um, and so that's why they were trying to, you know, make it good for everybody, right? So yeah. it, it, I think it was a development not only in science fiction and in the you know producers of this stuff, but the marketing as well as they learn more and more about how to you know divide up their audience. I think that would definitely that. explain the Peter Pan run because I think so I think some of the people at Paramount might have seen Star Trek as being for little children. So sure, that would certainly sure. explain that. Aaron makes a really great point because back in that era when you license stuff, you had like a master toy licensee and they did all the stuff. You had a, a, a book master, you know, book a publishing, you know, who did all that. Now it's like you parse everything. 
Yeah. You're the three inch toy right. company. You're the six inch toy. You're doing the nine. You're doing the, the high end collectible. You're doing the low end collectible. And it's everything so niche. And so these niche companies know how to target the fans that are interested in their product and, and, and who the audience is. Back then, you had to make deals with huge companies mm -hmm. because basically they were the only ones who could pay the kind of advances. Right, exactly. And, and B, you know, they had to then market it. You know, they didn't really able to, mar you know, market it through mail, which generally have to be, you know, Toys R Us or retail or FAO Schwartz. And or, they could carry you know, the capital that was required to produce all these things. Yeah. In a pre-internet world, distribution was could be challenging. You, they need the big, the bigger companies were the only ones that could really afford Absolutely. to do it. At least that was the perception. Could smaller ones have done it? Maybe, but well, nobody was giving them a chance. So, and something else that was happening too at the time in terms of comics after the motion picture was the rise of the direct sale comic market, mm. where which didn't really exist before. So you had, and the rise of the direct sale comic market gave rise to also more mature storytelling because it, yeah. with comics not just on spindle racks, you could have people who were revolutionizing comics back then, like Frank Miller doing Ronin right. after his famous Daredevil run with Elektra. And then there was a lot of small press publishers that were publishing more adult comics, genre comics. I mean, even like, uh, what was it, Peace? Was it PC? Or did Alien Worlds and Twisted Tales, Pacific Comics? You know, and there were, it really started to, I think it was because of the direct sale market that DC saw a way in to go back into Star Trek comics and, and knew that they were going to make comics for an older, more discerning audience that would understand what Star Trek was. Especially so I think, given that Star Trek II had just come out. And Star yeah. Trek II showed that it can be done in a mature and an intelligent manner that wasn't pandering to children. No, and you had both the action-adventure. You literally had space battles and a nebula, but you also <laughs> had the talk of what it means to be middle-aged and right. am I old and worn out, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And they, they definitely saw that happening. And, and I think if the direct sale market hadn't come about when it did, we might not have had Star Trek comics, at least until later. I think the reason that, I mean, to this day, a lot of people refer to the DC run as the gold standard. There, yes. I mean, other companies, Malibu did a great job. The second Marvel run was great. Wildstorm had some good stuff. IUW has done great stuff. But when people talk about what's, what, what stands out the most, I can tell you from when I was doing the Eagle Moss books, the one thing that people would ask me is, when are you going to do this DC story? When are you going to do this? This is what people really still recall. And part of it, it's because it ran so long, you know, yeah. 300 plus issues. It's, it's a lot. But also, um, it... Uh, it was just so good. There are so few bad DC stories. I mean, in, in, in that many issues, and most of it is really quality stuff that's written for adults. I mean, there's an occasional one where you go, meh. But like the, it, the unusual thing about DC is it was the first Star Trek line where I actively, when I reread them, that I actively am anxious to get to the next one. If I reread Gold Key, like I'll just read them and go, <laughs> oh my God, this is so ridiculous. But it's not like if something interrupts me, I go, no, I need to read 53. You know, I, I'll read right. that whenever. Right. If I'm reading Marvel, same thing. But if, if I'm reading the DC run and I'm in the middle of a storyline, you, you know, I want to I finish it because sure. it's yeah. the first one that made me say I'm actively interested in these characters. I'm invested and it feels like Star Trek to me. Well, and Was also- that true for you of, of, of the original and Next Generation? Uh, did you feel both were strong lines for the, for DC? Once DC got past the the six issue Next Generation miniseries, yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, and I and I don't blame anybody involved in this and that because and I say that very playful. I I I in no way am mocking the people who made the miniseries for for they had the same kind of constraints that the people making the early '70s stuff and '60s stuff also faced, which was that they hadn't seen the show yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, you ended up with. Um, you know, Riker lounging like he was in a, you know, on the beach and putting his feet up, you know, like things he just, you know, in the front of Picard or, or Wesley going, are you going to kick his alien butt captain? You know, things that would not have happened on TV, but it was their extrapolation of character descriptions, much right. like why David Bailey ended up in the UK strip for half yeah. a series. Uh, so I can't, I can't fault them. Once they got past that, the couple of te- seasons had run and the monthly run started. Wow. Michael Jan Friedman's, storylines they're some of my favorite dc stuff also the the first before next generation you know four years when they started in in 80 uh 84 the dc comics they added a lot of new characters that were unique yes. that were created not just bear claw but there was um nancy, nancy bryce. bryce and dr you saw who i liked and conum and elizabeth sherwood yeah and they did a really great they job had Sterno, of, the guy who was only ever shown like you know from here down because he's like eight feet tall yeah no <laughs> they did a really good job uh creating new legitimate characters that felt yeah. like they were we were getting something new you know yes. we were getting something that was actually adding to the canonical mythology because at the time you know whether comics actually happened were these canonical or not there was a lot of things in those comics that i was like yeah they are canonical and i did like these these characters and when they would go back and do sequels to episodes they were pretty great i mean they were really well thought out i mean mike barr started writing he did his big mirror universe saga Mm -hmm. man i love that it was great i'll tell you something robert one of you you just nailed it subject that matters to me in terms of uh my reactions to the series every time i reread it people talk about what is and what isn't canon i i honestly believe well although i love every iteration of star trek to some extent i think people spend way too much time worrying about what isn't canon you know because there are no vulcans there are no klingons and you cannot jump on a starship and and, and travel at warp How three so yeah no it's all <laughs> real on, i'm sorry it's all real. but uh <laughs> But so to me, canon is less important than is the story good and doesn't matter to me. So when I read when I read the DC run, as far as I'm concerned, those stories between the films did happen in my head canon. There was a mirror universe invasion right after (laughs) Spock. Yes, there was. and, And you know what? And if people don't agree. Okay, like it's it doesn't affect the fact that to me it did like, you know, so it's like, you know, do I think that there was ever a point where the Enterprise shot flames out its butt? No, Uh, but, you know, but 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 I still enjoy reading them because they're fun. But the DC run to me in my head can it happen. And when and when things get over, get overwritten by later TV shows, I just sort of, you know, squint and and make sure then it still fits. You bring up a big a big point that that DC then had to navigate the fact that what was going on in their comics had to then sync up with the movies, yeah. and they so did a pretty good job with that too. Well, I mean, they were the, telling that's two years the key. Of, yeah, yeah, they were telling two years of stories when Kirk was in command of the Excelsior, right, right, because the Enterprise was destroyed in Star Trek Three, so there he was in command of the Excelsior for two years until they got to Star Trek Four, and they had to caress it all in there, and that was really clever. They did, they did a, a really good job. job. My favorite thing was the fact that they didn't know how Star Trek Four was going to start, and so they didn't know 
what was up with Spock's mind, but they couldn't leave him, you know, saying Jim for three years, right? They had a, you know, <laughs> your name is still Jim. It's still Jim, right? You know, they couldn't do that for three years. So they, they needed to come up with something. And so they had him be fixed, get his own ship, and then have it all unravel just in time, you know, which I thought was great, just in time yep. to have to go to Vulcan and be retrained at the beginning of the movie. And so, um, yeah, you, there, there are a couple of things that, you know, where you go, well, that wasn't quite right, but 98% of it, re remarkably good job. Of, well, again, of, it's, not the, it's, not the it's not the deviating from canon that right. some people are concerned with. It's right. that there's no effort to adjust it to fit it in, to make it flow afterwards. That's where I think some people have a, have a problem with uh, certain aspects of fandom at this point. But um, you, you know, I, yeah, can tell you I, this. I agree. I, I used to write for, uh, I, I did some writing for the Star Wars Expanded Universe. And one mm -hmm. of the things I had fun with was making things fit that just simply didn't, you know? And uh, there were a lot of writers you know, for like the, the, West, the West End Games books and so forth. That the, the thing that was fun about this was finding the holes and plugging them. Yeah. And uh, I think a good writer can do that. So a good writer, if presented with something that doesn't fit, will make it, will find a way to make it fit. I mean, a lot of people complained about Discovery's first season, and I think each season has gotten better as they've listened to, to, the, uh, to what the fans had to say. So I, I think that a good writer can make something work uh, if there's an intention of doing so. I, so I agree. We get to a point where um, Star Trek's never been bigger. You know, uh, Generations comes out. Right. Uh, Kirk and uh, um, Picard are on the cover of Time magazine. And uh, Star Trek's just exploding. Voyager's premiering. Uh, and the comics kind of explode at that point, too, because you have Malibu that was very successfully doing the Deep Space Nine comic, mm -hmm. um, uh, DC doing the, uh, uh, the uh, and then uh, and then Marvel buys Malibu and Paramount decides they're going to get into the comic book business. And uh, and everything gets canceled and everything gets canceled. I was, I was so crushed when that happened. I, I still uh, remember. I, was I, such have a, a, uh, I have a story about this. So. I was officially a Star Trek consultant for Viacom licensing at the time. Hmm. And I wrote an impassioned plea when I heard that the DC, the license was going to be pulled from DC. I wrote like a, a 20 page document. I wish I still had a copy of this hmm. and I turned it in about why they should not pull the license from, from, from DC. And I like, nobody asked me to do it, but I was so, cause I was so into the Star Trek comics and, you know, I was told that, well, you know, Rob, uh, it's it's a rival studio that's publishing Star Trek comics. I mean, Warner Brothers, DC, whatever. We can't have that. We've got to publish our own comics. And I go, yeah, but Marvel's going to mess it up. Look what they did with Star Trek, the motion picture. And ironically, the Marvel, the best, they, when, they didn't listen to me. And the first <laughs> comic that I really liked was the Pike comic. Yeah, Early Voyage is fantastic. Great comic. For, for me, Marvel's best work uh, were... Early voyages, um, untold voyages from from uh, from, from Glenn Greenberg, and uh, and and I absolutely loved Operation Assimilation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so there were there were some things that, that that they did that I thought was fantastic. Overall, I think the second Marvel one was better than I expected it to be. Yeah, I had the same reservations you did. As much as I have a soft spot for that motion picture era story, I thought they're also look. I, I'm looking. I, I, I'm looking forward to reading it. 
but I will seriously miss the DC and Malibu run. And Marvel are the people who gave us space gnomes. So, you know, like, is this going to be good or is this going to be, you know, another example of, of, of or, or Marvel's Dracula showing up in, in the haunted house story? And I have to bring up the fact that our own Mr. Mark Altman, Inglorious Trexpert himself, wrote mm -hmm. some pretty good Deep Space Nine comics for Malibu. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, like uh, you did I, I uh, an I mean, Anne Frank story. Sitting there, it was great stuff. That was really good. I was yeah. really impressed. I, I love doing it. I mean, and I, I, I was really happy to have had that experience, and that led to doing a little stuff for DC at the time. And that was, you know, was pretty early in my career, so it was, it was really exciting. I mean, getting that first check from DC Comics that was like the, you know, thrill of a lifetime. But the big so, question is, thank you for you, saying that. Why didn't you contribute to the X Men crossover? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that I, I think that's, that's a loaded a, question. Should I had Ashley do that. Oh. <laughs> that was a comic and a novel crossover. Yeah. Yes. Two comics and a novel. Yep. Yeah. Which, by the way, uh, <laughs> I would imagine um, is frustrating for those who don't read one or the other medium. Like to find out that there's uh, <laughs> to get the whole story, you have to pick up a novel if you're not a novel reader, or two comics if you're not a comic reader. No. <laughs> it's no Star Trek meets Planet of the Apes, though. I mean, what in the is? wake of Alien versus Predator, I mean, it's like, oh my God, we're gonna have peanut butter and chocolate in all our franchises. It's like crazy. <laughs> Legion of superheroes. I mean, it's crazy. Transformers and Star Trek. It's a federation of superheroes. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, as a general rule, I'm not a fan of crossovers. Not that I think they're badly written. And in fact, some of them I really enjoy. Actually, the first Star Trek X Men is surprisingly really kind it of is, fun. It's really good. More fun than it has a right to be, you know, given that it's like, I think that the very genesis of it was the desire to say Dr. McCoy and have two people say yes at the same time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's surprisingly a whole lot of fun. But as a general rule, I'm not a fan of crossover simply because in, for me, I have trouble moving past the fact that you've now diluted two universes simultaneously. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, but I'm gonna so that I'm not in any way uh, offending anyone who's ever written a Star Trek crossover. I'm gonna use a franchise that that it's never done. Star Star Trek and Little House on the Prairie. I, I kind of wish it had because that's so ridiculous. But let's no, there, just, is there was a they crossover. Had the same, they had the same production designer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but let's say you nice do Star Trek. <laughs> let's say you do a Star Trek and Little House on the Prairie crossover, and it's really well written and it's really well drawn and it's faithful to both. Yeah. Once you're done reading it. You have to somehow come to grips in your head that Laura Angles met aliens. Right. <laughs> and that for the rest of the TV show, she was aware aliens existed, right? <laughs> so, and never mentioned it to anybody. <laughs> I have no problem with that. <laughs> Wait a minute, you talk about this story as if it really exists. Is there something you're not telling us? No, no, I was using that as an example because I didn't want to offend anyone who's ever written across. I was just hoping you somewhere in a drawer, you know, in uncovering the British comic strips, you might have found this crossover. And I actually there was a Star Trek novel called Ishmael that's Ishmael. basically Star Trek. Here comes the brides. Here come the brides. Yeah, so, right. with, why other not? Little, with other Western little tidbits thrown in as well. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I actually I, I loved Ishmael. I, I was I, I I remember reading that when it came out and thinking, wait, isn't this that show with <laughs> like Mark Leonard? I, Mark Leonard. Yeah. I remember, I remember, I mean, at the time, I was like, isn't this? I know I've seen this. Like what? <laughs> Um, okay, so th th yeah. let's pause for a second and, and <laughs> because they, they, we can't pass over the crossover thing without what would be your ultimate Star Trek crossover if you had a 
it, 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 you know, what would you you know love to see either from a, a kitschy point of view or a genuine desire to see uh, Star Trek crossover? All right. To answer that, I think I have to first tell you what which one is my favorite, mm. because there's a reason it worked for me better than the others. And that's Star Trek Doctor Who. The reason mm. that one worked so well for me is that the Enterprise crew meeting the Green Lantern can be fun, but doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me in terms of the universes in any way gelling. But two TV shows in which characters travel through space and time and are aware of other dimensions and meet aliens, to me, they're compatible. I mean, you know, you, you, especially given that the Cybermen and the Borg are basically the same thing. They're variations on a theme. So it's, it's, uh, to me, so so if I were to pick what I would want as a crossover, I'd probably say no crossover. But if my second choice would be uh, to find another franchise that would work, and in only the, the only one that I could think of in that vein would be Battlestar Galactica, but done in a series vein. Which, in other words, the, and the problem here is that the, the series the serious vein is Ron Moore's version, and there are no aliens in it. The version with the aliens is the is, is the 70s version, and it might be a little too goofy for a crossover. And this brings me back to my point before, which is that you dilute it. Once you have the Enterprise crew meeting Adama, I don't I don't know if I, I could take it seriously. I, I, think <laughs> I always I, wanted the Enterprise crew to meet. I think if you, I, John Byrne, I wanted the Enterprise to meet Galactus. You know, the Enterprise crew dealing with Galactus and and uh, what are you going to do? With an entity oh, that eats planets, you know, and how would you? Well, it they've seemed dealt to with me, it before. Well, yeah, and it seemed like you could get away with that. Like Galactus, it came out of hibernation in the twenty third century, and Kirk and the Enterprise crew have to deal with him. You, you know, that was the original ending work. of Star Trek Five before the there budget they had to cut. <laughs> you, you might be able to do something with that by bringing in the Doomsday Machine or like uh, you know the, the you know so, some other some other thing that they've shown that eats planets. <laughs> have it eat Galactus or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the, the problem is with, with all of these crossovers, there's a whole lot of fun ones. And in fact, I think more of them have been fun than not fun. I, I actually, mm -hmm. I actually um, um, had, a, I, I enjoyed infestation from IDW a lot more than I thought I was going to. Star Trek meets zombies is just so ridiculous as a concept. Mm -hmm. But I, I like it a lot, uh, and and they've because because they approached it from the standpoint of science. It's a plague. It's not a horror film, even though there's a horror element to this story. In a science fiction uh, world in which doctors cure plagues within twelve within you know forty two minutes on a regular basis, uh, a zombie plague makes sense. So maybe there's your answer: Star Trek and Walking Dead. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> So then the Marvel uh, uh, is, uh, experience with um, the Paramount Comics is a complete disaster for them. And, and they got to lick their wounds. Tell us where Star Trek comics go after that with the, the emergence of Voyager, which was going to be a, a Malibu comic. And, and that never happened. And then it went over to Marvel uh, and um, Paramount. Yeah. The the uh, Marvel, I mean, Malibu had done a, a, a two-part adaptation that it created for Caretaker from the pilot and never got published. And they were told, as far as I understand, uh, from Tom Mason, they were told that they, they pursued it, but were told uh, just right out, no, you, you can't do Voyager. Um, which makes me wonder, given that um, Malibu only had it for a couple of years, I, I, I do sometimes wonder if um, 
if there was a bigger plan in mind. And maybe Robert would know this working at Viacom. At the time that Malibu uh, wanted to do uh, Voyager, were there already plans in mind at that point for, for Marvel to eventually take it over? Or was that a short-term thing? I think it was a short-term thing. It, it was, unfortunately, they didn't really at the time with Voyager, the reason that I was brought on there is because Viacom, uh, the computer games division of Viacom, Viacom Software, was developing a Voyager game and the licensing department hated the game so much that they mm. needed to bring somebody in from the outside to say that it was a bad game. Mm. And I was literally hired to do that. That's how I was brought on, on board. And that was my first job. Could you please analyze this game? And I'm just like... And tell them why it sucks. Yes. And I think the, the problem was, again, and you, I saw this firsthand, people didn't know at the licensing level at the time what was good and what was bad i mean if something was really bad like the game they could recognize that but they just figured yeah marvel comics they'll do great with star trek not knowing that dc was already doing a marvelous job with their own comics line so maybe so, that would explain then why they nixed uh, malibu's Mar uh, voyager comic maybe they just weren't convinced that it was going to succeed yeah, no, I'll tell you, I, I actually was 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 doing the Deep Space Nine comics for Malibu at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, I was there when this all went down oh, okay. because I wrote the prequel. They had me actually, which was published <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, to Void, which was going to lead into Voyager. Right. So I had, I wish, you know, so I wrote this whole thing about the McKee, that whole miniseries I did, McKee, Soldier of Peace, Soldier was supposed Peace, yeah. to lead into um to pave the way for their fantastic Voyager series. And they'd even talk to me, say, oh, we want you to do, you know, like maybe a Voyager miniseries or some Voyager stuff, because we're going to be doing it. And that was when Marvel ended up buying Malibu. Mm. And then all of a sudden it was complete. It was dead. Mm. That was, it, and then, the, you know, that it was, it was dead because they it, said, it does yeah, make it, sense it, then. It's unfortunate because I think you guys were doing a great job at Malibu, but, uh, but I, but I, I can see then, from their standpoint, why they change it, even if I totally disagree with their decision. I'm fully with Robert that it should have stayed with DC and Malibu, but yeah, no, that, I mean, you had people said, who were doing it well. Yeah. And it's, then it's one of those, know, if it ain't broke, don't fix type of situations. Yeah. But totally. I, I do think that Marvel pr produced some quality material. They produced, you know, it's, I actually not that long ago in my weekly column hit the end of Marvel. And um, one of the things I, I, I discussed was the fact that, the first the first uh, series produced 18 issues and then um the uh the second one when you add up all of the various stories they did was close to 100 in the same amount of time and i think that that might be actually just slightly less time than, than the original uh originally did 18 that might be a clue as to what happened with marvel maybe it imploded because they pushed out too much too fast i can remember going to the stands and getting at my local comic shop and being handed six issues at a time and being like, oh, this is cool. I'm looking forward to reading them, but that's more money than I was expecting to spend today. But so I think Paramount was pushing that. Yeah, I think yeah. Yeah, they were the ones telling Marvel, if you're going to, we're going to give you the license, you, you, you have to treat this the way we, you know, so there needs to be like four or five different, yeah, they were telling Marvel, this is like a big it, deal. It's what we said explains. about this is Star Wars, not yeah. Star Trek, because I think that, People still labored on the misapprehension that in some way Star Trek is a Star Wars caliber franchise. And it's just but not. It's the just unfortunate not. side, the, the unfortunate um, downfall of all, so downside to all this is that when, when Paramount realized this isn't going the direction they wanted it to, they canceled everything 
abruptly, giving them no time to wrap things up. And so early voyages and Starfleet Academy uh, both ended without any resolution in the middle of storylines. It's very frustrating because I, I loved both those series, which I reread recently for the col- while writing the column and remembered, man, that the, these, these concluding storylines were fun. It's a shame that the, the, uh, the endings simply don't exist and, and uh, except in outline form. And um, and uh, they so had they at least been given time to wrap up their their, their like say three months from now you're out wrap it up uh, it, it would it would have gone over better instead Marvel ends up in this really weird um, this weird hole it was it was producing quality material and then just like it looks like it just turned around and walked off the playing field which is weird because it wasn't their decision no and uh, and so that you know but you know like it, it's like two decisions were made very abruptly marvel's doing it marvel's not doing it <laughs> like and and uh and i wonder both- if financially if it was a standard license deal or if it's almost like four walling where where paramount was using the infrastructure of marvel to create and distribute but maybe they were putting up the money you know as opposed to it being a, a straight up license deal because i mean they did give up all the revenue they were getting from malibu mm-hmm. and dc you know to to move the whole thing to marvel i mean I the whole thing's very a, odd i think they expected paramount comics as, as an imprint in general beyond star trek to be something bigger than it was yeah i yes. think that might be the biggest problem here is that they it wasn't just going to be paramount comics now this is a case where Robert would obviously have more uh, insight into this, but uh, as far as I understand, it wasn't just going to be Paramount pres- Paramount Comics presents Star Trek. It was going to be an imprint, and it didn't really ever go anywhere. And, and, right. and so that might have prevented them from getting to bring in the revenue they they. And so they just cut their losses. Is is that an accurate statement? You think? Yeah, I mean, there was the problem was there was nobody there to have to make a paramount comics you know there's yeah. there wasn't there wasn't a group of people that were all interested in creating new ip for paramount under that banner yeah, you know yeah. it was it was like marvel took it over so they were going to deal with it oh you mean they got to make comics <laughs> um, oh so I if mean, i have this paramount comics thing i have to make comics for paramount oh um, yeah and and again i think that that's happened a lot with star trek is these people take these things on it's like, why are there no Star Trek Lego sets? There's Star Trek like mega blocks. You know, they don't they don't go to Lego. They go to something else and they think, OK, we're going to it's going to be successful. And, and that happened with all the merchandising post motion picture. You look at all the what happened in the 70s, uh, the 80s and the 90s. It was always going from place to place to place. And it wasn't until something would settle down with like Playmates toys that they really knew what to do with the franchise. And they didn't nobody really knew they just didn't know it's never the a-list and it's, it's it's almost like ivan ackerman in any hall always the wrong answer they're always going to the wrong licensee the wrong you know with the with these products over and over and it's always substandard and again you're always comparing it to star wars but it's even like in the tv series it's like when you know oh boba fett's coming back in star wars boba and fett. the world trembled you know, it's like everyone was talking about it. You couldn't get escape it, right? You know, who in Star Trek would you say is coming back to Star Trek? Where other than maybe you know Shatner as Kirk, would anyone care? Would would have that kind of? There's no one. Oh, we're doing Khan again. Okay. You know? I, I think the best. I think the best example of what you just said is the lukewarm reaction Star Trek Picard got. 
Mm-hmm. Because the fact is that bringing Patrick Stewart back after all those years should have been a bigger event than it was. Well, again, they went to the wrong people to make it. You know, it's it's if, if you think about Kurtzman's beginnings, he was working for a director who said all the time, and you can watch the clip when he's on the the um, um, the Late Show when he says, or it was the the was it the da- the Daily Show when he says, "I never liked Star Trek growing up." You know, when J- that's what J.J. Abrams said. That's how their new iteration of Star Trek began. And then you see the comics being done by IDW, and they did a much better job with the Kelvin universe than the movies did. Well, let's talk about IDW, because, of course, after Marvel Comics imploded, it was the Wild West for a while before it finally lands at IDW. I don't know, Rich, if you want to briefly just talk about that brief period after Marvel Comics. And then that kind of takes us to IDW where we are now. Sure. Um, There were were two publishers in between that um, both had brief runs. And the first was Wildstorm. Uh, Wildstorm was a DC imprint, so it, it was a weird case of history repeating itself in that uh, you, the comics went from Marvel to DC to a Marvel imprint to a DC imprint. It was like they were just kept handing it back and forth. But but uh, and in both cases, the uh, the second time around was short run. Um, now Wildstorm primarily produced comics based on Voyager and Next Generation because at the time Next Generation was the heart of the franchise and Voyager was the next big thing. So it, it made sense, but they also produced stories based on the original series in deep space nine. They did a, um, uh, they did a comic based on a uh, new frontier from Peter David, but it was, it was not ongoing titles. It was one shots and minis and it, and it, it, they had fewer than 30 issues total for, for all four TV shows. So it was a very short lived thing. Um, Side note, where I, where, I, where, I, where I get to uh, both brag and mourn at the same time, uh, the final issue they did was called Star Trek Special, which was uh, six little mini stories by different uh, writers. And I was supposed to be writing the seventh one. And it would have been my first comics work. Uh, but I was the last writer brought in. And uh, at the last minute, much like what happened with, Wild, with Marvel, Wildstorm uh, suddenly was told they're done. And uh, the budget for the final issue got cut. And my story never was never published, but uh, but you know um, I actually really liked that issue too. So I wish I could have said that I was in it. Uh, but after after that issue, um, Wildstorm um, left the playing field, and for the first time since Star Trek comics existed, there were several years without comics. Um, there there were little tiny periods here here and there, but from '67 until the end of Wildstorm, there had been an almost continuous stream, other than a few months here and a few months there. But several years went by, and Tokyo Pop came in and did uh, did four manga, manga. Right. yeah, four manga digest, and three of them based on the original series, one based on the Next Generation, and there was supposed to be a second Next Generation that never came out. These uh, had four or five stories in each one. Uh, done in, in traditional Japanese style, uh, and they were written by uh, various artists, so a lot of newcomers to Star Trek, but also uh, David G- Jerry Gerald, uh, Will Wheaton, Diane Duane, um, and um, they, they, one my, my favorite aspect of, of Tokyo Pop is that they gave an origin to the Borg Queen in the first, the first book, and it's, it's, it's pretty good too. It it uh, it it's it's a little jarring if someone has not is not familiar with that type of, of artistic style to read that first book can be a little a little off putting just because it's it's very different and um for those who are, for those who are new to new to it it's kind of like looking at the Campbell Soup Kids 
So uh, suddenly Kirk and Spock and Uhura look like the Campbell Soup kids. It, it can be a bit off-putting, but, but there's some good storytelling in there. Um, and, uh, and, and it, again, just, just like with the second Marvel run at Wildstorm, uh, Tokyo Pop left the playing field pretty quickly. But while Tokyo Pop was producing them, in the middle of that is when IDW stepped in. And, uh, and there's your two-minute description of Wildstorm and, and Tokyo Pop. But feel free to, you know, we can elaborate so, if you want. What do you think the future of Star Trek comics is? I, IDW now has done more Star Trek comics than any other uh, publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, they're not doing as much as they have. I don't know what the market is, particularly with the pandemic these days. Um, and, you know, also the studio's desire has always been to promote whatever the newest iteration of the franchise is, which isn't necessarily the one that people are the most interested in, in terms of merchandising. Um, it seems as though. Which is why there were no enterprise comics because mm-hmm. they were concerned about that very question. Really? Can you elaborate a little on that? The um, enterprise, because it ended earlier than they were expecting it to, it didn't have the it, it didn't have the audience numbers they were expecting, and it's the only franchise that the only Star Trek franchise other than Lower Decks, uh, for which right. there hasn't been a, a dedicated Star Trek comic. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a there were there were two IDW comics that featured characters from uh, Enterprise, but neither one of them is, is is an actual Enterprise comic. It's Flesh and Stone and Waypoint. Um, for, but for whatever reason, you know, they've shied away from doing an Enterprise series because it wasn't seen as a, a show, as an overly marketable uh, TV show. So if you came out with a six issue or five issue comic of Enterprise, would it sell if it was also on stands with one featuring Kirk, Picard or Janeway? You know, so and, and, and so I, you know, I, I think that oddly enough, Deep Space Nine, which is one of my favorite of the shows, has had remarkably few um stories post marvel and um that's a shame although there's been a couple of recent ones it's a shame enterprise has had none uh lower decks is very new so it's had none but, but your point about the, the, the you know what's current is, is true because a lot of the current stuff has been about discovery plus a picard miniseries and what do you think the future is? I mean, is oh, it yeah. going to continue the way it has or, or no, no. Or, or, I mean, what, what is the future of Star Trek comics? Is it bright? Do you feel the best days are behind it? Uh, you know, wh- wh- where, where does it go from here? Well, you know, regardless of what anyone thinks of the current shows, I, I happen to be a fan of them, but I recognize that they're very, you know, in many ways, they're very different than what came before. So I, I understand why, some fans might some some fans might be resistant to them. The same goes with the Kelvin films. It's all very different than everything uh, uh, up to uh, say Voyager or Enterprise. Um, but I happen to like what IDW is doing for the most part. From you know from when they came in in 2006 to the present was 2007 2007 I think. Um, for the most part, um, the whole run I've enjoyed. There have been a few mini series that I thought were you know, kind of weak compared to others, but even the stuff they're coming out with now, I mean, I've really enjoyed their, their discovery comics. I thought that I thought Picard countdown was pretty good. And uh, so as far as where the future goes, I think if they can continue to, I think IDW is, and I'm not privy to any information here. It turns, if IDW announced they were canceling the run tomorrow, I would look like an idiot, but I think that IDW is going to, is going to continue to be doing it for some time to come because um, they're, they're well-received. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, w- will they need to change the medium? Possibly. I mean, the whole comics world right now is kind of imploding. 
Um, so w would the push be more towards graphic novels? Maybe. Would it be towards online digital stuff? Maybe. But I like to think that IDW will probably retain it for some time to come. Um, uh, but now, now here's, the, here's the thing, though. Um, CBS All Access is... Uh, it's a new era in this, the CBS All Access. You know, could it be that CBS does what, what, what uh, Paramount does and launches CBS Comics? I, you can't put it past them. So it could happen, you know, I, I, but, I, but I, I don't have any, I don't, I don't, I have not heard anything about that. Um, yeah. I know that the, uh, the graphic novel collection did well uh, and, and, and selling only hardcover comics. So I think there's a market, if they do have to transition to graphic novels, I think IDW would survive it. Because and, they, and, wouldn't, and, they, they wouldn't need to, to make them hardcover so they could charge less. I want to give you a chance before we wrap up to just plug your IDW, uh, not IDW, your Eagle, uh, Eagle Moss uh, uh, hardcover um, uh, collection. Um, if there's something you want to say about it, how people can subscribe uh, to that you know, beautiful set, which for those watching on the Electric Now app, you can see it behind, Rich. Uh, look at there's those spines. Um, to show up, but that's more <laughs> but uh, it's a pretty extensive uh, uh, collection chronicling the entire history of Star Trek comics in one place. You get a lot cheaper than buying all those back issues. So uh, w w can you wrap up by sort of telling us how people can go uh, if they want to get that, subscribe to the series of books? Sure. Uh, the Eagle Moss uh, website is where people would go if they want to find them. What the graphic novel collection is, uh, started a few years ago, they decided that they were going to do a parts book series, which is uh, you continue to receive subscriptions, books through a subscription in, in, in the mail. And uh, as you can see on the covers, as you keep getting more, an image of all the various ships depicted in the comics keeps growing. They, those are all on, on the spine, in case anyone's wondering, those are all images that have appeared in the comics, which is why the, the styles are not exactly the same because it's from the various publishers. The idea behind the graphic novel collection was to take everything from gold key to present and, and make it, put it all under one roof. So that, because finding more than a thousand comic books, it's not easy to do, you know, uh, eBay makes it a whole lot easier than it ever was before, but it's, it's a lot of work. Whereas if you subscribe to this, they just show up in the mail. Um, I came in very early on writing the introductions to the books, along with Bob Greenberger, we alternated. Uh, and then when the previous editor stepped down as of volume 71, I, I became the editor and um, the series ran for 140 volumes um, plus 10 specials. So 150 in total. And, and I've been do I was the editor from 72 on. Um, recently, unfortunately, they stopped producing new books which is a shame because we were this close to pulling off the mission statement of presenting everything. There's some, some comics that, that were not that were not included in there. Um, I am trying to change that, but I cannot say any more than that at this point. Um, but uh, that's, that's I, I would like to get that done. Uh, really it, the, the series was released in 20 book extensions and I, I have a roadmap to finish everything else in, in one more 20 book extension. Eagle Boss canceled it, which makes it difficult. But I, I'm, I'm trying, you know, the books are still available. The subscription can still be purchased if people mm -hmm. want to get them. It's just that it won't go beyond 140. Okay. Well, Rich, I got to tell you, we we would have loved to talk to you about your Planet of the Apes books, your Watchmen. I mean, you, you know, you're, obviously you do a Star Trek column for Eagle Moss as well. So much stuff that you've done, so many cool things. We'll have to do that on another show. Sure. Um, but it's been great having you and taking this trip okay. down yeah, uh, this was a Star lot of Trek fun. comic yeah, memory lane. This is this is awesome. So uh, 
you know, happy holidays and, and, and hope, uh, uh, and we'll have you back, you know, sometime next year to talk about uh, some more of this. And hopefully by then, uh, maybe you'll be on your way to completing this massive archival undertaking. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I'd love to come back. Can I just say one thing before you wrap it up? No. Yeah. Okay, you great. May. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Robert, I, you may not know this, but I think you and I are published in the same book. We are. Yeah, the uh, the, the Blade Runner book, right? Uh, Cyberpunk Nexus. Yes. So, uh, so, so with that, with, with, uh, although I'm just one of the contributors, so like I had nothing to do with, with that, but it, it's cool that we're in the same book. I like, that. uh, you know what? I, I was, I was happy. I mean, I, I wrote an essay, the box office of 1982 and Blade Runner being a disappointment. And I kind of felt that was kind of a bummer thing to write, but I, I like my column. I thought it was good, my essay. I thought it was all mm -hmm. right. But yeah. that book is a terrific book. That's why I book. remember, because I remember reading it. So that's why I reckon, I realized we were in the same book. Yeah. Yeah, no. I thought you were going to say you uh, both didn't help turn a turtle over on its back. <laughs> I was afraid that that was no, uh, baking I, in the sun. That's another great book. I mean, I the, those uh, those put, published by that company It's that you published a lot of your stuff, too. Cheekwork, yeah. yeah, they're, yeah. they're great. And I really love those books. Oh. Very cool. Uh, they're fun. I, I, I love doing those. But if well, you come, back, to come back, I'd love to. Yeah. And we'll talk Planet of the Apes and, and uh, we talk Blade Runner and, and, and of course, Star Trek, because that's uh, that's the money right there. That's the one with the <laughs> wizards, right? Yes, that's right. Space <laughs> wizards. That's Star Wars. Um, OK, well, thank you, Rich. And we'll, thank you. Uh, we'll talk to you next year. Sounds good, man. Have a good holiday, guys. Thanks. Bye. That was a long one, but I know you stayed with us because <laughs> Rob Burnett is about to reveal his favorite Star Trek comic book of all time. So drum roll, please. Well, there's so many that are, are memorable, but I have to tell you, I've, I mean, I, this isn't cheating, but DC Comics published a Star Trek graphic novel called Debt of Honor. Mm -hmm. And it was written by Chris Claremont of X-Men fame. And it was drawn by Adam Hughes. And it came yeah. out in 1992. You you had the female Romulan commander from the Enterprise incident come back. You had core. It was just, it was a Star Trek cornucopia of awesomeness. Yeah. And I <laughs> loved it. I love the art. I love the story. And it was a prestigious thing. I mean, I, I feel I should go back and pick a comic from from one of the the many runs of the show but to me the pinnacle of it was it was the same way star trek the motion picture was big and huge and massive this graphic novel that first came out as a hardcover felt that way it felt like an epic event and it it, it delved into star trek history you brought back characters that were beloved from the original series and i loved it I, I thought it was great, and even now I'd recommend. God, I can't believe it's almost it's twenty eight years old, yeah. but I think that was the first thing that leapt to my mind. <laughs> Fantastic! Well, this, this was great. I thought you know, Rich was absolutely fascinating, and uh, the history of Star Trek comics is a you know we, we talked a lot of bit with the brothers Tipton a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. and but uh, it's great to do uh, another deep dive because uh, we Star Trek comics have been uh, a, you know a fascinating extension of, of uh, the, the the world that we love. We yeah. tripped over a little bit on the uh, on the Marvel uh, adaptation of Star Trek the Motion Picture, but that has always been a real landmark for me. First of all, because of the amazing uh, cover painting. Oh, that so was a, a, an adaptation of one of the uh, earliest uh, concept paintings or, or advertising paintings for the original Star Trek. 
and all mm. the characters were sort of in the same, uh, you know, uh, place on the page. And, uh, and of course, the Enterprise didn't have fire coming out of the back of it. Uh, but um, what was great about it was that it had, because of the lead time involved, it had scenes that were not in the theatrical yep. edition. Mm. And they actually had scripted scenes that we later went back to in the director's edition and used the comic book for reference because they had, you know, used the storyboards that were around for the time about wow. stuff that they couldn't finish. So it, it is sort of a, a big representation of a big time in Star Trek history for me. That's so cool. And I know before, you know, I had my first VCR and got Star Trek, the motion picture on VHS, that super special, even yeah. though I had the three comics, I just adored it because it also had a couple of pages at the end, yep. you know, uh, like making of information about Star Trek. The Mushroom. It was on this beautiful high end paper. And as you said, that cover was just stunning. And it was the first Marvel super special, I believe. Yeah. Um, and one, and little, just one little personal note on that. They reprinted it for the 40th anniversary of the motion picture. Uh, right. I, I think IDW did. Yes, and, that's right. And, they included my logo for the 40th anniversary of Star Trek, the motion picture, because uh, John Van Sitters at CBS uh, liked it. And he said, well, why don't you use this? So that's a which little created, which I created for, for this podcast. So, yeah, that's great. That's great. And I have to say um, that, uh, yeah, this, I mean, it's really, really interesting. I mean, in that whole happy meal era of Star Trek, again, it just shows how important Star Trek, the motion picture was and people, it does not get its due. Yeah. Uh, but how significant it is in so many areas, not just in the film itself, but licensing yeah. and uh, comic books and uh, uh, obviously food service. Um, so <laughs> it was a big electrical jolt to the body that was Star Trek in the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> and without it, we never would have had the Star Trek five marshmallow dispenser from Kraft. Marshmallow dispenser. Marshmallow dispenser. <laughs> so true. So true. And on that note, I want to thank uh, Rob for uh, once again joining us to talk Star Trek comics. And of course, Darren Doctorbin and my co host. And uh, we want to thank Bill Ritter, our uh, sound engineer, for making us sound so good. Our production associate, uh, Peter Holstrom, our producer, Natalie Miscali, and you, our audience, for being so supportive this entire year um, and uh, just uh, showing so much passion and enthusiasm, enthusiasm for the Trexperts. And of course, if you're a fan, please wrote five stars. Uh, at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. You can also watch us on Electric Now by downloading the free Electric Now streaming app at your favorite app store. You can follow us on social and in Glorious Trek on Twitter and Glorious Trexperts at Instagram. And of course, you can listen to our sister shows, The 430 Movie, Best Movies Never Made. And you can listen to Rob Burnett on The Burnett Work on YouTube. So <laughs> check him out uh, for more commentary and incisive analysis. So until next week, we want to thank you for joining us and wish you keep on trekking ingloriously, of course.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.